The year was 64 AD and Rome was burnt almost completely to the ground. Hundreds of acres blackened Hundreds of public buildings burnt, thousands of homes, thousands of its citizens left homeless. Historians now agree almost unanimously that the burning was done by the Emperor Nero in a goal of rebuilding Rome to a glory that he felt he was more worthy of and that the empire was more worthy of. Get rid of the ramshackled homes that largely did populate the city of Rome. It's where we get the phrase, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Of course, now we know that the fiddle was not invented at that point. But there are stories of him standing and looking with great delight at the burning of his city. So the populace was incensed and they quickly were at the point of revolt. So Nero needed a scapegoat. At the time in that city there was this odd group known as Christians. And rumors about this group were pretty weird. They did this thing called the Agape Feast which sounded awfully perverted but it gets worse than that. They got together and they ate somebody's body and blood. So there were actually ideas about these Christians as this really weird, cannibalistic, sexually perverted group of people that made Roman worship seem noble. So Nero blames the Christians and thus opens up one of the great seasons of persecution in the history of the church. Persecution has always been a part of the church of Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to know hardship in my name. In some ways we've been, I want to say blessed every time I say we haven't had to face persecution. I'm not so sure that's a blessing. Because faith is purged and purified when we really understand that it is a question of life and death. For us, we, we as a people haven't had to worry about that for a long time. It's why we're anemic. It's why our churches, four out of five churches, are plateaued or shrinking. And so the persecution was horrendous. These are where the true stories of Christians being dipped in tar and, and put on posts and lit as lamps for Nero's parties, soaked in stretched wet leather, and wrapped tightly so that as it dried and shrunk they would experience an excruciating slow crushing death thrown to lions so the Christians had become a hated group to name yourself as Christ in that period was to if caught consign yourself to a death sentence and now three years later in 67 AD the Apostle Peter writes to those that he refers to as the diaspora. Those who because of persecution have been driven away. In the end of the book he says that he's writing from Babylon. Most actually believe that when Paul is referring to Babylon which was of course the city of persecution for the ancient people of Israel that he was saying he was writing from Rome, which was the new 
empire that was bringing persecution to the new people of God, the Christian church. And of course, that would match what we've learned in the second chapter. As Paul refers to this new people of God as the fulfillment in the new covenant of the people of God in the old covenant. I want you to capture that. Perhaps before we read these opening verses, you could think to your own life experience right now. I mean, many of us have experienced and are in the midst of experiencing hardship, some relational heartache, others of us different degrees of disappointment and betrayal, financial hardship. We can easily get discouraged. And so in one sense, we can relate to what Peter's about to share but I think we'd be better served today if we compare what we're facing in the context of what Peter's readers were facing and realize that we've actually got it pretty good no matter how bad we think we have it. But let's take to heart Peter's words as we begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1. To God's elect. Now think about this. They are scattered and fearing for their lives. Peter begins with, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade because it's kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says right away, you're precious to God. Your life in Christ gives you a hope that nothing can take away because it's not held by the hands of men. It's held by God and it's preserved in heaven. And he goes on and he affirms that and begins to lay out this idea that gives them this living hope, which is the theme of First Peter. Living hope. A hope that will endure all circumstances. And he lays it out by helping them identify themselves not as a persecuted people, not as citizens of an earthly realm that has marginalized and villainized them and targeted them for destruction, 
but a people of God that are his own with an eternal hope and an eternal reward that awaits them. It's important to note that he says to them, you have not seen him, and yet you believe. Because Peter is largely writing to Gentiles and Jewish citizens from across the Roman Empire that had never seen Christ and had come to faith anyway. And that's an honor we bear today too. Echoes the words of Jesus who said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But there's a challenge to that. Because when you come to believe in Christ, even though you've put your faith in it, feeling connected to those events and to the people of God can be difficult. And then when persecution comes, the sense of isolation, and then the challenge to our faith, the doubts as to whether it's worth it at all. Because as we've learned, we're not meant to live this journey alone. And so even though they're dispersed and no longer together, Peter reminds them that that's not enough to make them any less than the true people of God. And we now turn to the second chapter that we've been studying and see that what is building is this living hope in these believers that are scattered and in hiding, meeting in hovels, meeting in secret in very small groups, wondering if anyone else is out there who still believes, if they alone have remained faithful to the faith. And then they receive this letter of hope from Peter, and they're reminded that they are still citizens of a glorious kingdom that is not of this earth. Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, in other words, those that are persecuting you, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you, wherever you are, and wherever you're reading it, and in what circumstances this message finds you, all of you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the very people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Every metaphor in this image builds on the primary idea that you and I and all those at that time are part of the great people of God. The Old Testament people of God were a foreshadowing, an incubator through which God could unfold his plan of redemption. But now in Christ he has fulfilled that work. Last week the metaphor that built on that idea of the Old Covenant people of God was a spiritual house. 
The old people of God had a physical temple where God was worshipped, but we are where God dwells now. Everywhere we are is the house of God. And coming together as living stones, God is present in us in a powerful way. So the old temple has been done away with. And we are a spiritual house in which God dwells. Today we're going to look at this idea of us as a priesthood. First place we see it is in verse 5. You are, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. And then the second place we find it is in verse 9 and 10 when, when Peter runs through a rapid uh, fire of metaphors. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So the whole picture is seeing you and I as the church of God as a holy and royal priesthood. So let's take some time and pull those apart. First thing we're going to look at is the priesthood as holy. What does the word holy mean? We, we tend to think of it in terms of rules and regulation and living a good life, but that's really not what the word holy means, right? What does holy mean? Set apart. In particular, set apart by the act of God. By the foreknowledge and by the sovereign work of God being set apart. In this first section, Peter is dealing directly with the images of the old covenant worship experience. Three things, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. And so when he refers to them as a holy priesthood, he's dealing with the Old Testament idea of a priesthood that was set apart by the choice of God. So how did God do that in the Old Testament? He chose a tribe from among this exclusive group of people known as, as the Israelites. A single tribe known as the tribe of Levi. The only way that you could serve as a priest in the Old Covenant was to be able to say, I'm a Levite. Because that tribe had been set apart by the calling and purposes of God. They were a holy priesthood. Peter is saying, we are the fulfillment of that. And whereas in the Old Covenant, people needed a priest to stand before them and God, you don't need that anymore. We are set apart by God's sovereign work in our life. That's why Paul refers to us as the elect, those called by God. Now, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, we together are a kingdom of priests. Make no mistake. God has called us and set us apart for himself. Stacy, I'm sure when you think about the time you came to Christ in your 20s, you were on a search. You found the truth and you laid hold of it. But at some point you realized that all along God was laying hold of you too. You see, we focus so much on this idea of our search and our choice. Scripture focuses on God's search for us and his choice of us. That lifts us up. That lifted up these people to know that they, they weren't just by happenstance followers of Jesus. They were followers of Jesus by his unique call on their life. What are some of the things that you can think of that, that priests did that might help us understand this metaphor now for our lives? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. They made offerings to God. What else? Ashes went through the grating. They blew the sephora. 
which said, meant it is finished. And that was a picture of Christ himself. So when he yelled out at the cross, it is finished. The Jews should have known that the final sacrifice is the final sacrifice. That's awesome. That's great, Marie. Thank you for sharing that. I'm not going to have her repeat it. Sorry, some of you missed that. She was commenting on what it meant to offer sacrifice and watch over it and declare the sacrifice finished and thus the forgiveness of sins. So in some sense, we are the messengers of that. We don't offer sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. Christ was sacrificed once for all, but we do declare the finished work of Christ and speak the message of forgiveness. I love that thought. Okay, so let's talk positionally. Four things really stand out when you think about what the priests did that reflect on us. The first is that the priest reflected the holiness of God. Everything from what they wore to how they lived their lives, what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do, all these things spoke of the, the holiness, the otherness of God. Our lives need to reflect that also. So we reflect the glory of God. The priest offered sacrifices, which we're going to talk about in just a moment because Peter refers to that. But then there were two positions that the priest held. First of all, the priest stood before God in worship. The people stood before the priest in worship. There were degrees of separation between God in the Old Testament form of worship. For instance, if you were a Gentile, you could only come within what's called the court of the nations. There was a wall. It wasn't a very big wall, but it represented a huge barrier if you weren't Jewish. And then Jews could enter in farther, and then Jewish men could enter in only farther than that. And then only the priests could enter to the next level, and then only the high priest to the next level. You see, there were degrees of separation, and so the priest in some sense represented a barrier. We need a priest to stand before God on our behalf. And the New Testament says, now we don't need a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ Jesus. So one of the great images of us now being a kingdom of priests is that we stand before the living God. We can come boldly into the most intimate place that once was held from even the priests. No one stands between you and God. I don't stand between you and God. You have direct access because Christ has made the way for you. That's what we mean by the priesthood of believer. It's not about authority. It's about access to God together. So we stand before God. But in one sense, as priests, we do stand between God and the world around us. We are messengers of reconciliation, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. That's a priestly function. Standing between the world and God has two directions. We face God on behalf of the world and we intercede for them. So we stand before God and beseech and intercede on behalf of the lost. But then the opposite is true too. We stand for God to the lost. We are the hands and feet of the great high priest Jesus. What I touch, Jesus touches. What I say, Jesus says. Where my feet step, Jesus steps. We are the priesthood of God to the world. 
That's why it is through us that God is crying, 2 Corinthians 5, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. See? So that's what it means to be the kingdom of priests. We, we stand between the lost and God. We stand on their behalf in prayer. We stand on God's behalf with the message of forgiveness and grace. We, like the priests, as Mary pointed out, say, it's finished. The work's been done. No more sacrifices here. We don't, we don't do sacrifices in this temple. We just offer grace in the name of Christ. That's who we are to be at the journey. But now let's just quickly talk about that second adjective, a royal priesthood. In the first section, we know that Peter is directly alluding to the Old Covenant people and the Old Temple, which is now replaced by a spiritual house, which is you and me. We know he's referring to the Old Priesthood as a Holy Priesthood, and he's referring to us as the New Priesthood. But now he uses a very unique phrase that is not about the Levitical line, because he calls us a royal priesthood, which the Levites were not. But Jesus is. There is a character in the Old Testament that this is referring to, that the writer of Hebrews spends a great deal of time helping us understand. For the sake of time today, I'm not going to get into Hebrews, but if you want to do a follow-up study this week on what I'm about to share with you, read Hebrews. Actually, read the whole thing, but pay very careful attention to chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you will see that the writer of Hebrews takes great pain to help us understand that Christ is our great high priest, but it has nothing to do with being a Levite. Because he is a great high priest after a different order of priesthood. The order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God who precedes even the nation of Israel. Go all the way back in the book of Genesis when Abraham was Abram. Melchizedek was the priestly king. In fact, the name means priest and king. He was the high priest of God, but he was the king of a city. Anybody know the name of the city? Besides my, little, my couple of scholars over here. Anybody here know the name of the city? Salem. You know what Salem means? Peace. Peace. Kind of funny when you think about the history of Salem in Massachusetts, doesn't it? Yeah. Salem means peace. So out of nowhere, we have no record of, of his background, how he became a priest of God. Out of apparently nowhere, he encounters Abram, and he is honored as the priest of the living God, who was Abraham's God. Abram honors that God by tithing to this king, an act of worship, giving a tenth of all of his possessions. The king blesses him and goes off, and we never hear of Melchizedek again. Some believe Melchizedek is Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ comes from nowhere, meets Abram. He's the king of what? Salem. He's the king of peace. And he goes away. Some believe he's Christ. I don't know for sure. But what I do know is that the region in which the children of Israel that eventually came from Abram, when they settled and built a great city, the city was called Jerusalem, which is the new city of peace, 
And tradition tells us that the new Salem was built on the location of the Salem of Melchizedek. If that's true, what we have is this picture of the holy mountain that God had set apart long before Israel built its temple there. And a king who God had already put in place there, who was the king of the Most High God, who was also a priest to God, who came to a man out of whom would come a nation who would settle on that very holy hill out of which would come two different lines, a royal line of David and a Levitical line of priests, both of which were only mere shadows of a greater Jerusalem, a more eternal peace, and a greater high priest who is yet to come. Isn't that beautiful? Christ is a royal priest. Christ was from the line and lineage of who? David. And yet Christ was called out as a high priest under the order of Melchizedek. He is the great royal high priest. And that is our lineage as his sons and daughters. We are not just a temporary priesthood by virtue of some tribal relationship to Levi. Our priesthood is established under the lineage of our great high priest, Christ. Imagine yourself being part of the diaspora, fearing for your very life, friends having been put to death in the most heinous of ways. Imagine the hope that would come to you if you were reminded of this precious truth, your royalty. You are a priesthood serving a greater king and even the emperor who seeks your life. And the treasure that is yours will never perish. Imagine how that can help you survive the greatest of circumstances because you look to a heavenly kingdom. You serve a heavenly king. What you are part of on earth is a greater dwelling than man can build in which that king is alive on earth. We're living stones in a spiritual house. We are a holy royal priesthood. And what is it we're called to do? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Note the important use of the word spiritual here. Because the metaphor is the literal temple priesthood and sacrifices. Peter takes great pain to say it's a spiritual house. We are spiritual stones. And we offer spiritual sacrifices. See? We are part of an eternal thing that transcends what we can touch and what we can taste. It's impacted here. But what happens here does not impact it. As dark as circumstances are here, that never changes. That's a powerful thought. What's, what's the best verse to go to to talk about what it means to offer spiritual sacrifices? I think of Romans 12.1, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercies, what he has done to open up and make a living way for us to stand before him, innocent and in fellowship, stand before the very face of God. In view of God's mercies, what should you do? What is a spiritual sacrifice? 
I beseech you in view of God's mercies to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Living human beings offered to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And then what does he say? This is your spiritual act of worship. This is your spiritual sacrifices. Least we can do is to recognize that everything we do is an act of service, of sacrifice to our great high priest. Wouldn't it be great if that's what people saw in this body? If we could so reflect that all-giving, all-reaching God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the great gift of worship, for our friends who led us, singing from their hearts and playing from their hearts, inspiring us. Thank you how this room captures all of our voices. So when we sing to you, we're creating something that rises up and is from all of us to you. As a kingdom of, of holy and royal priests, that's a sacrifice of worship. It's a sacrifice of praise. Thank you that we could give that to you in this beautiful place and experience your presence because you inhabit those praises. And we've known that presence today. We thank you for that joy of worship. We understand a little more clearly the joy of that as your priesthood, that we can come and offer this worship to you because of grace. No mediators, no barriers. Father, inspire us about being your priesthood to the world around us this week. May we reflect God May we reflect grace. May we be reconcilers. In Jesus' name, amen.